Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I'm really excited because I have Christina Woodkey, the author of Radical Focused, in my opinion, the best book on goal setting that I've read. Current lecturer at Stanford. She also has a background in product at Zynga, MySpace, and LinkedIn. Basically, she's been at some of the biggest companies that we've had, seen them grow up, and I'm really excited to talk to her today. So welcome, Christina. Thank you, Maggie. Awesome. So I wanted to start a little bit about your background and how you got to the point where you wrote that book, Radical Focus. So can you tell me a little bit about how you got to the point where you needed to or felt the need to write the book on goal setting? Yeah, definitely. So it's interesting because I had worked at Zynga and it's a John Doerr company, which means that it had OKRs. And Mm. I'd gotten really into the habit of just living by our OKRs. And there was a lot of things that Zynga did smart. And it's interesting to think about Zynga because it grew really, really fast and it fell pretty, pretty hard. It's sort of hit a stable state now. But it's very easy to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I think when I think about what Zynga really did right was the way they used OKRs. It was just so tight. And then Mm -hmm. when I left industry, I was helping various startups with this and that. And I just couldn't believe how they struggled to do the things they said they do. Like when you first meet a startup, they're really excited. They're telling you how they're going to change the world. They have this amazing vision. And then when you get to work with them day by day, they're all bogged down. It's always, oh, look over there. There's this thing we could do. Or should we apply to Y Combinator? You -hmm. know, all these things. They really struggled to live their mission. And they had what I think of as sort of mission drift, where if you don't look at what you're trying to do every single week, which is what Radical Focus is all about, people start making up stories about what you're trying to do. And then you get conflict. Like some people might think that you're there to revolutionize healthcare. And then somebody else is really all about the cost savings. And these stories create tensions and confusion. And it's hard to know what you should actually do with your day when you don't really know what your goal is. Right. So when I first started working with the startups, I started introducing them to OKRs, which, you know, the way I'd done it in Zynga. And then I started tweaking them and simplifying them based on how people worked with it and writing about it. And it's a lot like the Eric Reese story, you know, with Lean Startup, he very first started just blogging about the Lean methodology and said, hey, this thing kind of works. Who else is trying this out? What do you think? Mm -hmm. And that was the same thing for me. I was saying, hey, you know, here's some things I know about OKRs. And other people would say, hey, can you hop on a call? I'd love to talk about what we're trying to do. And I accidentally ended up getting a lot of knowledge about OKRs earlier than a lot of other folks because I think in public. Right. And so after that, I thought, well, maybe I should write a book. And I'm a big fan of storytelling. There's a lot of Mm -hmm. data that shows if you learn things through a story, you're more likely to retain them. And I'm a big fan of Five Dysfunctions of a Team, one of my favorite books of all time. And so I decided to do a story based on sort of an amalgam of the various startups I'd worked with and what I'd seen them struggle with. And I hope that that would make it easier to read, more fun to read, but more important, easier to remember. I was just talking to a friend who has a startup, and he said when he read Radical Focus, he remembers it because it felt like he was doing a ride along with Jack and Hannah. Right. And so he thinks about it still just because he got really involved in the characters' lives. And I think that's pretty nifty. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's probably one of the first books I had read in a business context that had that sort of relatable story that you could continue to refer back to. Yeah. I think that there are a handful of really good business fables. Uh, Phoenix Project's another one, mm-hmm. but they don't get a lot of respect but they get a lot of love. And I think if I have to pick between the two, I'll take the love. Yeah. (laughs) So one question I have on the thing you were talking about with 
goals at Zynga is, do you think that the goals need to be sort of ingrained in the culture from the beginning? Because I know at least I've seen and been a part of a couple of, you know, we're at a point where we need to have OKRs and we're going to do this big thing. And then we go through this long drawn out sort of slow process and then we stamp them when we have our OKRs. And then of course we sort of forget them and never look at them again. So Mm -hmm. like, it sounds like Zingo, it was ingrained in the culture. How have you seen people sort of bridge that gap? It's really habit building. I mean, the secret is the cadence. I think the cadence is, it's not even as much about goal setting, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. So one of the reasons I think OKRs are a nice goal setting methodology is because the objective is qualitative and the KR is quantitative. And so it unites the entire company. But that's not what makes the methodology so powerful. What makes it powerful is touching it. I often think of OKRs as like a smooth rock in your pocket that you touch with your hand over and over and over again. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, at the beginning of the week, when you're setting your meeting, you're saying, what are we doing towards our OKRs? And when you write your weekly status, you're saying, what did I accomplish towards the OKRs? And when you have the bragging session, what did we do towards the OKRs? And Everybody sets goals. Everybody who's made a New Year's resolution has set a goal that they've immediately forgotten about, I'm sure. So the (laughs) struggle is not, can I set a good goal? And I love SMART goals and KPIs and all of those. But the question is, how do we live our goals? How do they make them part of our life? And, you know, I've worked in agile companies forever. And I think the the ritual is the answer. Just like a daily Mm. stand-up is powerful, the goal setting and the bragging sessions are absolutely vital to the OKR's ability to not be forgotten. So you asked me a couple of different questions yeah. in your one question, very sneaky. Yeah. <laughs> but another question is, you know, does it have to be there from the very beginning? Yeah. I don't think so. I think there is always a point with a company where it's time for OKRs. It's interesting that the gentleman I was talking to today, he said, mm-hmm. what do you mean you don't need OKRs before product market fit? And you can use OKRs to help you focus on product market fit if you Mm -hmm. want to. You know, you could say, here's my hypothesis and here's the three key indicators. And if we don't get it in three months, it's time to pivot, right? Right. I mean, a lot of startups die because they don't know when it's time to change. They just keep going one more week, one more week when Mm -hmm. they wake up and they're out of money. But then there's another point where you found your product market fit and now it's really important to get everybody pointed in the same direction to execute against it. So Mm -hmm. I see people adopt it then when it's like, okay, let's make sure everybody understands this is the single most important thing we're doing this quarter or next quarter. And then it gets really ugly when you try to adopt them as really big companies. And that's been one of the biggest struggles I see. Ben Lamarte, who's a good friend of mine and Felix Castro, the three of us are all people without software to hawk. So we always talk to each other about what we're seeing our clients struggle with. Mm -hmm. And when you have a big company, there's an instinct to do exactly what you said, which is like, let's implement it everywhere. Right. And that's almost a certain recipe for destruction. Like all of us have seen the same thing. What the best thing anybody can do is create a pilot, a small, usually a product group that's essentially self-sufficient. You know, they have their own engineers, they have their own designers, you know, and then have them start piloting because there are so many factors that go into the OKRs being viable. One is do you even have the metrics? Like I'm always surprised at how many companies I work with and they haven't even thought about what metrics actually matter to them. Right. 
So first you have to figure out what are the numbers that will actually tell us what we need to know. How are we actually going to measure them? How are we going to collect them? How are we going to set a baseline of what our current status is? How are we going to make a guess about what the future can look like? And this is where it gets really tricky because in order to get to good guesses, you have to make bad guesses, which means you have to tolerate a period of being wrong. And that Mm -hmm. can be really hard in some companies. There just isn't tolerance for what's considered failure when the reality is it's not failure at all. It's experiential learning. Right. So I always tell people, you're going to have a fail cycle first where you're just so very, very wrong. It's almost ridiculous. You're going to laugh. Like you're either going to aim way too high or way too low. You're going to be measuring the wrong things, but you have to trust that very valuable learning experience because a learning company is a company that can compete in the marketplace. And the methodology that goes with OKRs is as much about becoming a learning company as it is about becoming a high-performing company because of the constant checking in and saying what's working and what's not working. Right. Because you mentioned earlier that it's about living those goals and living those rituals. And so I think that's making it more clear to me that it doesn't even really matter what your first pass is at those metrics. You know, of course it matters, but like at least start somewhere and then continue to learn and iterate from there that that's the best part about using this rather than just the fact that you're, quote, doing OKRs. Absolutely. No, the first pass genuinely doesn't matter if you get it right, but it does matter that you do it. Right. Yeah, because I think we're at a stage where we are coming out of finding our product market fit and aligning on what we want to do. And now we're sort of figuring out how we can be more efficient and tactical and strategic about what we are doing. And so those metrics are becoming much more important to us. And we're at that point where we haven't, maybe we can't measure everything that we want to, but now we're starting to put the tracking in place that we can answer those questions that we're at least starting to ask. Well, I always point people at Alistair Kroll's Lean Analytics book. He's Mm -hmm. a big proponent of figuring out what's the single most important metric. And because I'm, of course, a radical focus person, I'm going to be wildly enthusiastic about that. Right. It's so tempting to hang out in those numbers and look at every single little thing and something moves And you don't even know, should I be excited? Should I be worried? Should I be happy? (laughs) You know? Mm -hmm. So you have to figure out what are the metrics that you're actually going to pay attention to. And you have to create sort of a hierarchy of metrics. When I work with really metrics-driven companies, you know, I told you about the ones that aren't even measuring anything, but there's the opposite problem, which is you're measuring absolutely everything. Right. And so then the OKR Foursquare becomes more to sort of an overview sheet. And then we go into all the metrics. But it's really important to have that clarity of this is what we're paying attention to at this moment. And if we have to screw every other number up in order to get these numbers right, we're going to make that choice. It just adds clarity to your execution. Right. So when someone comes to you, one of your clients comes to you and says that, you know, they're ready to get on board with OKRs or goal setting in general, what are the biggest traps that people fall into when they first try to do this that can maybe demotivate them from sticking with it? Oh my gosh. It's really funny. I get a lot of calls from people who have already tried OKRs once and Mm -hmm. it failed. And now they're like, my company hates OKRs. They never want to do it again. What am I going to do? (laughs) Because of exactly what I was saying, you know, they tried to make it this company-wide initiative without really thinking it through. There's an old saying, I don't know who said it. It's culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yep. And That's what I see happening is they come in and say, okay, everybody, we're all going to do this one thing and people roll their eyes and then ignore it. So 
what I learned, and this was way back at Yahoo days, was nothing succeeds like success. What you need is one group to be insanely successful and then mm-hmm. roadshow it. And everybody's like, ooh, I want that love. I want that attention. I want those bonuses. So by creating a pilot team that's smart and motivated and committed to work in this way, get them some successes and then point to them in the company meeting and say, well, those folks know what they're doing. Those folks are crushing it or whatever Mm -hmm. language your company uses. And then a little bit later, you're like, we're looking to expand the program. Who's interested? You're going to get people to sign up. So one of the thing is you can't roll it out overnight. You're going to have to think about a full, like easily a full year to get a rollout. It's going to just have to be slow. The other problem is compromise, which sounds strange, but one of the tensions I know, LinkedIn adopted OKRs after I had left. And Mm -hmm. I got this interesting story from a friend who still worked there that some of the company was using OKRs as stretch goals and others were using OKRs as, you know, just easily reachable goals. And it created this tension within the company, which is why are we trying to do these amazing, ridiculous moonshot-like things when those folks over in the corner are sandbagging, you know, and maybe they Mm -hmm. aren't sandbagging, but you have to figure out what are OKRs for us. And I'm a big fan of the moonshot approach that Google also espouses, which is OKRs are by their very nature stretch goals. You're always trying to see what's possible. And mm-hmm. if you have the freedom to fail, that's acceptable. It's like, we're going to aim for the moon. But even if we don't get there, at least we have Tang and Velcro, right? right? <laughs> you know, yeah. let's see what, what happens <laughs> along the way. But if you don't have that culture, then you're going to have to figure out a way to get there. You have to make sure that people are going to be rewarded on what they accomplished, mm-hmm. not on what they said they could accomplish. Yeah, I've been a part of a team where OKRs were put into place. And, you know, it was said at the beginning, you should only be realistically be able to achieve 70 to 80% of this objective that you set for yourself. So that's good. But then when it came time to measure ourselves, we were sort of color coding the slide in green, yellow, and red. And there were a lot of yellows, which would bring us to that ideal, you know, 70, 80% zone. But everyone felt really bad not putting green, it's sort of like, now that you bring that up, culturally, we couldn't figure out how to be okay with the fact that we weren't hitting the goals that we were setting. So there was that, like a lot of tension around bringing OKRs in. And even though we were saying it was good, being okay with the fact that you actually shouldn't be able to hit it. Yeah. Nobody likes the color yellow. Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's interesting because if you have a culture that doesn't have that tolerance for learning and the price that learning costs, then maybe green could have been the 70% and right. blue stars could have been higher. It's <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like a once yeah. a year celebration. Like, is there a way to realize that 70% is good? And I think this is one of the biggest tensions in OKRs in that there is always that question of when are we really truly realizing our potential. Like mm-hmm. this is the, in fact, it's the question of capitalism is like, can we constantly mm-hmm. grow forever? Is that really a viable approach? Can people always be more and more productive? And what I like about OKRs is I'm always asking myself, what else am I capable of? Mm-hmm. I'm curious about that. But on the other hand, you don't want to drive people into the ground, right? You don't want to burn out your employees. Right. So there is always going to be a question of what does a steady state look like? Where are we choosing to grow? 
Why have we chosen to grow in that place? What does it look like if we don't make it? I think that's one of the bigger questions about OKRs, because I know a lot of people don't find out what they're capable of until they implement OKRs and are setting those moonshot goals. And, Mm -hmm. you know, then you go, holy crap, we can do a lot more than we thought we can, but that's not sustainable forever. Mm -hmm. So that is an interesting tension. On the other hand, and I'm going to argue with myself, (laughs) one of the things that my clients really struggle with is they don't realize that when you move from one quarter to the next quarter, it's not like people totally forgot what happened last quarter. So OKRs have an interesting cumulative effect. So let's say you spent an entire quarter working on retention. You've Mm -hmm. gotten those numbers up. Now we're going to go ahead and spend the next quarter on acquisition. Well, it's not like we've forgot everything we knew about retention, people are still caring about it. They're still watching over it. They're still watching that number. They know a lot about retention. So now they know a lot about retention and acquisition. And then the next quarter, maybe you're focusing on conversion. Suddenly you have this growing effect, a lot like going to college where you go from the 101s to the 201s to the 301s, right? Mm -hmm. Quarter is making your company smarter in this way that's amazing and powerful and it can create extraordinary growth. Awesome. So that brings a point that I wanted to talk, or a topic I wanted to talk about, which is you are teaching right now at Stanford. And, you know, you were mentioning sort of OKRs as a way to figure out the potential of a company and of people and setting those moonshot goals, but that maybe it's not sustainable forever. So you're teaching sort of the brightest minds that are maybe going into tech, because I know you're teaching human-computer interaction. So what are you seeing from those students? Where do you think they're going to take some of these goal-setting things in this industry. Yeah. I always think of William Gibson, who said, the future is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. Every Mm -hmm. time I walk into the Gates building, it's like stepping into a science fiction book. You know, there's a robot in the lobby wandering around and there's conversations about smart showers that can detect cancer. And just, I really do feel like I'm living in the future, which is Mm -hmm. so fascinating. The students are not what I expected in a lot of ways. I knew they were going to be smart. Mm -hmm. And I think somehow I'd gotten this idea that they were going to be money-hungry Wall Street types who just wanted to start the next startup they could sell to Facebook to make a buck. And they aren't like that at all. The students I'm teaching care so much about trying to make the world a better place. They even get impatient if they feel like we're not working on hard enough problems. We Mm -hmm. open our HCI course with the problem with lunch and you go out and you observe lunch and you try to figure out why there's backup, why things don't work, you know, and it's a really elegant, simple project. And I've had students rebel going, this is first world problems. Why are we working on this? Why can't we do something that really matters? I love that. I love that so much. So they're really asking hard questions about diversity, obviously. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much in the news. I would say my classes are over 50% women, so you can imagine that they're extremely interested in that problem. Most of the men, though, have, of course, I'm a feminist stickers on their laptops, too. So the fight for equality is very shared among all the students, which is really mm-hmm. kind of surprising and wonderful. A lot of them are asking hard questions about algorithms, obviously, Tons of them will spend their summers interning for Facebook and Google. And I think there was a time when tech said, we're going to make the world better. We know best. We have the technology to fix things. 
And what I'm seeing with my students is, I guess, the snapback from that rubber band being stretched too far. They're saying, what right do we have to tell people how to live? How do we co-design with our customers to make their lives better? Are we really improving things? Or are we just moving problems around? And that degree of passion and caring, I have to say, I need that hope so much right now. I feel like yeah. going through a difficult time. Mm-hmm. And my students are like the balm to my heart because they're skeptical about what technology can do while optimistic about being able to fix the world's problems. And that's Mm -hmm. a pretty good combination. Yeah, because I know that probably 10 years ago, we could have said the same thing about the mission for many of those companies is that they wanted to make the world a better place. They wanted to make a positive change, change the world, all that. That theme is the same. But it's really interesting the reality that it sounds like your students are bringing to that same conversation. Absolutely. Absolutely. I try to give them the tools that they're asking for to think critically. You know, how do we think about ecosystems and information theory? How do we understand that when we do one thing over here, something over there breaks? I think that HCI was originally, you know, user-centered, right? That's what everybody said. We're user-centered. And I think the generation of HCI right now is ecosystem-centered, whether Mm -hmm. the ecosystem be a society or the earth itself. There's a much more profound awareness that everything you do has downstream effects. And I got to say, it's horrible to teach. Like, what a headache to try to figure out. (laughs) How do you get your head around the problem of unexpected consequences? It's in the Mm -hmm. name. It's unexpected. So, (laughs) you know, I think that's been one of the most interesting challenges. And I try to co-design some of the advanced classes with my students so that we're all exploring a topic sort of together where I'm providing Mm -hmm. tools And they're providing their passion and their raw thinking power. One class I did, we spent a quarter on fake news. And Mm -hmm. something as simple as that has so many pieces to the puzzle, the algorithms, the echo chambers, the bots. How do you teach people how to evaluate a news source? Like I had an entire class and, you know, we had 20 different projects because the problems we're facing right now are so multifaceted. And I think... The secret to that is to teach people how to be good team members. Like you have a lot of bright minds. We have to teach them how to work together. Mm -hmm. That's the book I'm working on now. There are no longer problems that one lone genius sitting up in a garret can solve. Everything takes diverse teams. Everything worth working on takes many minds working together, which means we have to solve the tiny problem of the person next to us if we're going to solve the problem of the person on the other side of the globe. Right. And how do you see those students, so going through this experience in your classes at Stanford, how do you see them interacting with and changing the current working world? Because I'm assuming many of them will go on to found their own companies, but a lot of them will join the workforce and the existing companies that we have. So have you seen them go there and come back for a next class? And how are they interacting with how we are solving problems today? Yes. Stanford is expensive. Most of them will go on to work for a company. Yeah. <laughs> some of them will go found things. Um, right. And some of them will go off to work on organic farms. One student went out, worked for tech, said, forget all of you. I'm going to go work on a sustainable farm. So people are mm-hmm. people. Yeah. I think what's really tough for them is they go off to their internships and they come back and they're like, 
but you didn't tell us about this or that Mm -hmm. or the other. And I think for any student to go into the workforce, the workforces are so heterogeneous, you know, one Mm -hmm. kid and one uses Atlassian and somebody else is using something else and the software changes every year. There's a lot of things you could only learn by being embedded in a company. So there's that, there's always that problem. The problem that we could get a lot better at solving, I believe, and I'm working with my colleagues here is working with other people. Mm -hmm. So how do you get influence? How do you sell up? I swear, I can't give a talk anywhere without somebody saying, how do I convince so-and-so that so right. is the right thing to do? Like, I've never given a talk without some variation of that question. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the ways we don't always serve our students is giving them what's referred to as soft skills, and they should right. be called survival skills, let's be honest, of how do I work with somebody I hate? <laughs> It's going to happen, right? Yeah. How do I show authority in my work when I'm only 22? Mm-hmm. How do I, you know, move the ball forward, right? And there are actually answers to those questions. And what mm-hmm. we love to see is incorporating more of those into the classroom. I think there's a heart of skill, a very hard skill. And then there's the survival skills, which I try to teach them with argumentation and persuasion. And then, of course, there's the piece of ethics. And so every time I design a project, I try to make sure that the project will afford lessons in conflict and lessons in ethical thinking, as well as lessons in need finding or usability or whatnot, because that's how it's like in the real world. These puzzles are always tangled up with a lot of other things, and it's good mm-hmm. to, be able to negotiate all the different aspects of a problem as they come together. Right. So. Yeah, I had a conversation with Richard Banfield today about high-performance teams, and one of the things I thought was really interesting, he came to Drift and gave a talk, and you know, he gave this whole talk about what makes a high-performing team. And what was really interesting is that none of it revolved around the skill sets of the people and how, you know, technical they were, how good they were, whatever. It was all about the ability for the team to interact with each other and have that psychological safety and have diverse opinions and diverse backgrounds. And so it was interesting. I'm just hearing a lot of similarities between some of the stuff that you're saying and how to think about building a team that's actually effective in the modern workplace. Oh, absolutely. And one of the biggest problems are that we just put people together and say, go for it, right? Right. But what I found with teams is a lot of the clashes come from norms, come from expectations that aren't spoken. Like one teammate thinks everybody's going to be there at a 10 o'clock meeting at 10 o'clock. And another teammate's like, of course, you're going to be there at 1010 because the campus is big. You know, you can't get across things. And one person's going, you're a jerk. You're always late. And the other person's like, what's your problem? This is perfectly reasonable. And there are deeper ones like, how do we make decisions? How do we disagree with each other? Is interrupting okay or is it not okay? And because we all walk into the space together with all these unspoken assumptions about how things should be, but they're not shared, teams have a lot of conflict. And one of the simplest things we can do is go through these elements and say, okay, when does a meeting start? How do we make a decision? What does it look like when somebody disagrees? How do we want to be as a team and then create a group norm 
that we can hold each other to. And everybody talks about psychological safety, but I don't hear enough about what do we actually do to make psychological safety right. happen. Right. And the norm setting is just one of several tools, much like it's this exact same thing as OKRs, right? Everybody talks mm-hmm. about setting goals, but nobody figured out how to achieve them. Okay. Everybody's psychological safety. What are the concrete real steps we can do in order to take a diverse group of individuals who have mm-hmm. all these different ideas of how things should work, all these different skills, and actually help them become a high-performing team? And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that businesses make is they just put people together and say, go for it. And they don't take that time that you need to let people get to know each other as people and then set up how they want to work together. Right. Especially when you have people coming in the door who are, like you were talking about, these incredibly motivated, incredibly bright people who really want to make a difference, but they just don't know how. And then you don't give them that chance to build that trust and that vulnerability with each other so that they actually can achieve that. Yeah. And it's amazing because you see it even in the student groups. You know, you put a group of students and say, go build this piece of software and figure it out. And, you know, half of the groups explode. The only difference is when a student group explodes, it's fine. It's only been weeks or five weeks and they can just kind of wait each other out. But at work, you can't do that. (laughs) You have to actually resolve your personal problems. They don't go away. Okay. So I wanted to ask, as we wrap up, if you had to give a couple of pieces of advice to people who are trying to set goals or be more effective at work and take advantage of all these this new thinking we have around psychological safety and building high-performance teams, like what are the one or two pieces of advice that you just think everyone needs to hear? One of my biggest learnings back at Yahoo was slow down to go faster. Sometimes mm-hmm. when you're in a big hurry, you're like, okay, let's just start working. You have to put in that time to set up your norms, to discuss how you're going to work. I think you need to set aside the time to actually go out and get a beer or have high tea or whatever floats your boat and get Mm -hmm. to know each other as people. Because if you know each other as people, you're less likely to blow up and try to kill each other when things start going sideways, Mm -hmm. when the tension comes. And so while there is an urge to go, oh my gosh, we're on such a short leash, we have to dash forward. Mm -hmm. You still have to set aside that time to figure out how you're going to work together because it will increase your speed later. And it's the same thing with OKRs. You know, maybe you want to skip that Monday meeting or you want to skip the Friday. Do we really have to meet on Friday and brag? Mm -hmm. We've got so much to do, but you're skipping the learning. You're skipping the part that makes things powerful. You're skipping the part that creates the psychological safety. So I'd say... Don't be in such a hurry that you do things halfway because the costs compound and later it all explodes. On the other hand, time box everything. When we first started talking, you talked about there were so many hoops to jump through with the OKRs, like it had to go up to the CEO and then it had to go back. I heard a story about Yahoo under Bursa Meyer where apparently it took them an entire month to get their OKRs approved mm-hmm. when OKRs are only supposed to take three months to do. So by the time right. your OKR was approved, you could no longer make it because you didn't have enough time. So time box everything, mm-hmm. make the time, but then say, okay, we're only going to spend one week on getting this okayed. Sometimes you have to trust people. Sometimes you can't okay and rubber stamp absolutely everything. There's a sweet spot 
you know, Mm -hmm. between going too fast and going too slow. And every team has to find that one out for themselves. Fail, learn, fix, fail, learn, fix, and then succeed, succeed, succeed. Yay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Fail, learn, fix. And then eventually, hopefully there's a success moment. Oh, there is. Somewhere in there. Yeah. It really is. That's why we brag because it's kind of depressing to always be. That's one of the things that some of my CEOs that I work with don't get is Mm -hmm. having moonshot goals is actually depressing. Like you said, you know, you're like, ah, so having that Friday bragging session where you feel like you're surrounded by all these people who are doing extraordinary things and you're just so excited to share your win is Mm -hmm. a a morale balancer. So you have to kind of find that way to continue to do impossibly hard things, but celebrate what you were accomplishing at the same time. I think OKRs are one of those things like eat less and exercise more. They're really (laughs) simple, but they're really hard. Yeah. And you just have to commit to the fact it's going to be hard, Mm -hmm. but it's going to be worthwhile because you're going to be healthier as a company. Right. Well, Christina, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing all of your knowledge and what you're learning about the future with your students with us. I hope I give everybody a little bit of hope because these kids are amazing. They're going to make a world that I'm going to want to retire in. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) me too. Well, thank you again. I really appreciate you coming to the podcast and I hope everyone gives Christina five stars. I'm not even aiming for six stars yet, but five (laughs) stars for our, for this podcast. Maybe eventually we'll catch up to the other podcast, but again, Christina, thank you. Really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Bye Maggie.